You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Last week, we celebrated Easter, the highest celebration in the Christian calendar. And what's interesting is that, you know, we spend a decent amount of time usually heading into Christmas. You know, Advent, we take a whole month and we lead up, you know, many people would say that Advent isn't a lead up to, to Christmas, but it is, kind of, you know. It's, it's meant to think about the second coming of Christ, which naturally leads us back to the first coming. We spend a decent amount of time there, Christians do. And what's interesting is that the highest celebration in the Christian calendar the highest theological theme that you could imagine in the church gets one day. For most Christians, that's what we think Easter is. But it's actually something more robust than that. Because the truth is that Jesus is just as alive today as he was last Sunday. He's just as alive today as he was on that first Easter Sunday. He lives forevermore. But it takes some effort and some focus for God's people to process how the resurrection should shape our lives. How should the resurrection shape our community and our relationships and all the other aspects of our lives? What difference does the resurrection make? We need to spend some time thinking about how to live in light of the resurrection. So this Eastertide, as we uh, take the next few weeks in the lead up to Pentecost, we are going to do a series on living in light of the resurrection. And what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and explore together the way in which the resurrection should hit different for God's people, as the young folks say. All right, The resurrection just... It's different. Mm -hmm. Y'all didn't know I was hip like that. So we begin today with a passage out of 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see how the resurrection changes us and how the resurrection sustains us. Those are the two things I want us to see about the resurrection today. I want us to begin to index our lives to the resurrection. And that's a very different way of living compared to indexing your life to your annoyances or your problems or your obstacles or the things that you want changed but you cannot change to index your life to your discontentments. Those are two different ways of living and God's people are not immune from falling in to indexing our lives according to everything else but the resurrection. And so we're going to dig in today. These are our two points. And we begin with our first, how the resurrection changes us. Take a look at verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, they generally say in the academic world that if you can't say it better, then you quote somebody. And Edmund Clowney, who was one of the you know, old school cats at Westminster Seminary, where I went to seminary, 
He wrote a commentary on this passage, on this book, and he said this about this passage. He said, this means of our new birth is not first the message of the resurrection. It is the fact of the resurrection. When Christ rose, he secured our salvation. He entered that new day of which the prophet spoke, and he brought us with him. You see that? This is really important for how you think about the resurrection in the scriptures and in the history of the church's teaching. Because many people have tried to make uh, uh, the faith more acceptable or palatable to modern people. And so they try to frame the resurrection as, a, as an inspiring mythology within the Christian faith. It's not literal, it's more figurative. And by thinking of that rise, it's meant to inspire us to rise up out of our problems. You can have a message of resurrection, but if it's not grounded in the fact of resurrection, that message lacks power. It lacks reality, and ultimately it will be a hope that frustrates you. Clowney is saying that this transformation is grounded in the fact of the resurrection, and only then can the message of the resurrection have its due impact. God's people have a hope that is as sure as Christ's resurrection. Christ has not just made our salvation possible, he has made it sure. That's important, y'all. He didn't come to make salvation possible, he came to make it sure. There's a big difference between possible and sure. And notice in the text that he, he uses the language born again. Now, this is more than what the little old church ladies used to ask me. Well, son, have you been born again? <laughs> born again. Think about the language. Think about what this language communicates. Born again, this language suggests a big change or a fresh start, or a new direction on the other side of an old life. Christians aren't the only ones who talk about being born again. Lots of people say it was like a new birth when I started taking care of my body and started eating right and started working out. Or it was, it was a complete change. It was like a new birth when fill in the blank. People say this all the time. And in a similar way, new birth means that something else has emerged out of an old life, regardless of what I did in the past or experienced in the past. Something decisive has changed. Some transformation has occurred. And when you put this together with the first person plurals in this text, take a look at the text. Peter says, our Lord Jesus caused us to be born again. You see, the Apostle Peter is including himself in this passage. He wrote it, but he's including himself. Why? Because he was exhibit A for the difference that the resurrection can make in a person's life. How a big change, how a fresh start, how a new direction and a new beginning can be yours through the resurrection. Remember the effect that the resurrection had on Peter personally. After this 
overly self-confident follower of Jesus completely bailed on him and denied ever having known him, he was overwhelmed by failure and grief and regret. He responded out of fear. He was rocked with shame and guilt, and the text tells us that he wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly? The text tells us that Peter was devastated, utterly devastated. Peter, the writer of these words, remembered this so vividly. He remembered what it meant to fail, to have a colossal crash. But Peter also remembered the effect that the resurrection had on him. He remembered being on that fishing boat when they heard the voice of Jesus calling out from the shore. He remembered diving into the water, jumping off the boat, not even waiting for the boat to get back to shore. That joker dove in the water. He remembered getting up on the shore. And he remembered Jesus cooking breakfast for the same fools who bailed on him. He remembered Jesus restoring him. But from this point in his story, in the story of Peter's life, from the time that he encounters Jesus risen from the dead, we see a distinct change in Peter. And it's recorded in the book of Acts. You know, we see Peter stepping up to lead the search to replace Judas. We see Peter emerge as the most vocal apostle in preaching in the book of Acts. And my man's central message is the hope of the resurrection. We see him faithfully attending to prayer in the temple. We see him mercifully engaging a lame man asking for alms, and he extends healing. We see him preaching again at Solomon's portico, and again centralizing the resurrection in his message. We see him faithfully enduring persecution for his stubborn commitment to preaching Jesus as the risen Christ. And after they get beat up and they get threatened, they say, look, you choose whether it's right to obey God rather than man. But as for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What had they seen and heard? The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see Peter boldly and fearlessly squaring off with the religious leaders of the temple regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's reasoning with these folks day in and day out. We see him patiently enduring threats. And when ordered not to preach Jesus, he replies, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. He doesn't put out an announcement, woe is me, we're being persecuted. I'm going to say again, he didn't put out there into the, into the world, poor us. We're being persecuted. No, the book of Acts tells us that they considered themselves blessed to suffer for the name. It was a cause of joy and honor, not of complaining and power grabbing. I need to keep moving, y'all. <laughs> and once Peter returned to the community of faith, he joins in praying for greater boldness to continue proclaiming Jesus to the people. I want you to know 
Nobody does such things for a myth. A myth can explain this kind of transformation in Peter's life. But we also see Peter uh, calling for sacrificial generosity within the Christian community and distributing to everyone who is in need. We see him delivering difficult words to Christians who were threatening the well-being of the church through their ungodliness. We see Peter and company continuing to go to the temple to preach Jesus when when confronted and threatened once again. And they're beaten and charged not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. But they left the presence of their opponents, quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And they didn't stop going to the temple and moving from house to house in order to teach and preach Jesus. I'm just walking you through the narrative of Acts. It sounds repetitious, right? But that's because they were repeatedly drawn back to the world by the resurrection. They were repeatedly rising up in the face of opposition because Jesus rose from the dead. Here's another one. We see Peter confronting and surrendering his biases against the Gentiles. And the last time we hear about Peter in Acts, he is vocally advocating for the very people he used to despise. Before the resurrection really took hold of Peter, he had those people over there. They were foul and dirty. But then the Lord works on Peter in resurrection power. And then he goes back to his fellow countrymen. He says, look, the spirit fell on them just like he fell on us. Y'all tripping. We need to accept them. We need to embrace them. We need to become a new thing altogether. And they're like, yeah, Peter, you right. Right? (laughs) This is what the resurrection does. In Peter, we see what it looks like to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Peter, we see what your life can look like when you're confident in your inheritance. In Peter, we can see the boldness of faith that characterizes your life when you are guarded by God's power through faith. In Peter, we can see what it looks like to rejoice even when grieved by various trials. In Peter, we see the beauty, the power, and the worth of a fire-tested faith. Peter is speaking as a witness to the transforming power of the resurrection. Peter isn't doing the travel agent thing here in this passage, handing out flyers to places he's never been to. No, 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 no. He's able to speak from personal experience as a witness. Peter might say, look at my life before and after the resurrection. Just take a look at my life. It's like night and day. And you know why it matters? It matters because this can be your story too. No matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum, this can be your story. Whether you grew up in the church and you've been in the church all your life, but you're struggling because you just are wore out by all the disappointing stories among Christians, or whether you just, you know, you're just at a point in your life where you're not sure exactly what to do, you feel a little stuck, Before and after the resurrection, there is something profound that changes for Peter. And it's not just his belief in the resurrection. It's it's about how the resurrection starts to pervade his thinking and starts to pervade his ethics 
and starts to pervade his relationships, his relationship to others, his relationship to the world. There is a start before and after through the resurrection. This can be your story. And here's a very simple truth, but it needs to be said. If God can raise the dead, then he can change the living. If God can raise the dead, he can change the living. I, I know it's hard to believe sometimes when those addictions feel strong. I know it's hard to believe sometimes when those sins just seem like they're always going to be with you. But if God is raising dead people, he's changing living people. The resurrected king became Peter's new center. Every change we see in Peter is a ripple effect of that central splash that happened in his life. Christ's resurrection spells hope for us. Not just because he lives, but because in vital union with him, we live. And so much of the message of the New Testament is be who you are. Live into what is true about you. You are righteous by faith alone in Christ alone, forensically. But the message of the scriptures is live righteously. You are holy positionally. Be holy actually. You are family in reality. Be family in function. You see, it's, it's the idea of living up into the truths that are ours. And not nibbling around the surface, or around the edges, sorry. Staying at the surface or nibbling around the edges. Thinking that mere assent to theological paradigms or doctrinal propositions is enough. It's one thing to affirm the resurrection. It's another thing to live in the power of it. And that's the difference we're seeing in Peter. It wasn't enough to just agree to the doctrine of the resurrection. He wanted it to pervade his life to shape his entire way of being in the world. Sometimes we get trapped inside of small expectations, don't we? Sometimes if you were to start digging around and, and to act, ask people what they really, really, truly believe about God, it would reveal a pocket-sized God who doesn't have the power to really deal with the, the real stuff, to make the real changes that we're longing for. But what would you expect to see in your life and in your community, and in your neighborhood, if the resurrection shaped your expectations for change? What if you had resurrection-shaped expectations? What would change about you? That's, that's one to go process, okay? It's not quite a sermon application, but it's a reflection for you. What would be different about your, your thinking, your acting, your relationships? I'll give you one concrete example. There are certain people I know living in a city like D.C. There are certain people and certain neighbors that you know, you can think of them right now, that you're like, that's not even worth trying. That connection will never happen. I'm not even going to talk to them about my faith because they ain't going to have nothing to do with it. They ain't going to want no parts of it. And we're just going to wind up having some awkward relationship as neighbors. And then I'll have to be like, every time I take my trash out, you know, like, right? Say I'm lying. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
There are certain things you look at in this city and you say, that's not even worth trying. The resurrection says otherwise. If the resurrection really happened, then nothing else matters. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then nothing else matters. You see? <laughs> if he is risen, then nothing else matters. None of your fears or concerns really tip the scales when you drop resurrection on that scale. That gives you the hope to engage with people. That gives you confidence to be able to love people regardless of what you think the outcomes can or cannot be. What do you expect from a risen king? I'll just leave that with you. But we got to move on from how the resurrection changes us to how the resurrection sustains us. That brings us to our second point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look at verse 5. Peter says of God's people, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Everything in this passage belongs to God's people through union with Christ. Truly. New birth, living hope, inheritance, joy. You see all the, the benefits of the resurrection life in this text? But when we talk about living in light of the resurrection, we're talking about owning the resurrection experientially. Or if you want to be fancy, existentially. Okay? Through the ups and downs that we experience in life, through the highs and lows, through the triumphs and the tragedies, we want to own the resurrection experientially. Union with a living God entails participation in his very life. It's important to see how Peter is juxtaposing living hope with the grief that's brought on by various trials. Now, I know this community, and there are various trials represented in this room. I know it. I've had the privilege of walking with you through many of those various trials. But Peter is trying to bang up against various trials with resurrection, living hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's important to see this. What we're reminded of here is that this fallen world, with all of its trials and all of its hardship, with persecution, sadness, difficulty, and loss, all of that, this fallen world is the theater in which the resurrection drama unfolds. It's the theater. So whenever that stuff comes into your life, you should be grabbing some popcorn. Be like, what's he going to do? Because I know it's going to be amazing. I don't know how he's going to work this one out. I don't know what he's going to do about this, because this right here is beyond me. And the Lord's like, that's right. I've been trying to get you to see this the whole time. It's all above you. And that's why you need me. Remember when I told you, apart from me, you can do nothing? I meant that. <laughs> I meant that. But when resurrection is a part of your framework, when resurrection is your lens, it helps you to index your sufferings, your trials, your losses, your hardships, whatever persecution you may face, to index those to the resurrection. 
In other words, it transforms all of that. It doesn't mean you never experience any of these things. We live in a fallen world. But it really changes the face of those things. They don't hit the same anymore. When the resurrection hits, these don't hit like that anymore. And it doesn't mean we don't lament and feel it deeply, but it does not have the power to undo us. And that's significant. Peter wasn't the only one who indexed his life experiences to the resurrection. Job was in the midst of the deepest kind of despair and suffering and loss. And you know what Job said? For I know that my Redeemer lives. David was surrounded by enemies who were trying to take his life. They weren't just saying mean things about him on Twitter. They were trying to kill him. Saul tried to spear him. That's real. That's a little more intense than a tweet, right? Hostile tweet. But this is what David says. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The prophet Jeremiah confronted the sin of God's people when they worshipped idols, saying this. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. Idols are nothings. They are literally no things. They are vain and empty. So much of the Hebrew language to describe idols, is, it calls them nothingness. They're ephemeral. There's no substance to them. The Apostle Paul told of his stunning list of sufferings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think this will encourage you because one of the hardest things to experience is being alone in your suffering. And one of the most helpful and sustaining truths is to be with others in your suffering. You don't need anyone to take your suffering away as long as they will be with you as you endure it. This is what the Apostle Paul says. You're in good company, fam. Listen to Paul describe his experience. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. But he concludes this section by saying this, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He indexes all of these sufferings to the resurrection power of God. Now, I don't know about y'all, but once I got about partway through that list, <clears throat> I might have had a little change of heart. I don't know about y'all, but as a kid growing up, I got hit with stones before. I'd never been stoned. I've never been, well, I might have gotten the 30, 40 lashes minus one. But the point I'm making is that he endured extraordinary sufferings and he was kept by the power of the Lord. And the same power that sustained the Apostle Paul can sustain you no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through. Stop trying to control it yourself. Stop trying to manage it your own. Stop trying to outthink the problem or outsmart the problem. And Turn it over to the Lord and know that you're in his hands and that this problem is completely within his providential care of you. And if he brings it to your life in his providence, then he's doing something. Look, when I go in, I've never had a major medical procedure, but I can imagine that having to do something like that, there are any number of things that the doctors are doing to you that you don't understand but they're really important for making you well. There are painful procedures that are necessary to heal certain diseases or to heal certain ailments. It's a similar thing when it comes to the redemptive power of suffering. And if you want to learn more about that, our dear brother, Dr. Micah Edmondson, wrote a whole dissertation on it and it's published. And he's very thoughtful on this about how Dr. King pulled this theological framework of redemptive suffering and it nourished his life of fighting for civil rights in the face of fire hoses and police dogs and bombing of his house and threats on his life that ultimately took his life. What is it that can sustain a person like that? This power. And all of these people that we just listed, we hear and see the resurrection power of God and the way in which they brought the living hope of a living God to bear on their experience. And just like he did for Mary and Martha, when he stood at the tomb of their brother, their brother Lazarus, Jesus shines the light of resurrection into the darkness of our lives. This is what he does. And I wanted to give you two practical pieces to think on as it relates to resurrection working out in our lives. Consider what the resurrection takes away. Consider what the resurrection takes away from those who trust in him. But also consider what the resurrection gives to those who trust in them. Trust in him. The resurrection takes away the power that opposition has to silence us. The resurrection takes away the power that Satan has to accuse us. The resurrection takes away the power that fear has to control us. The resurrection takes away the power that sin has to paralyze us. The resurrection takes away the power that failure has to consume us. The resurrection takes away the power that death has to terrorize us. The resurrection 
gives assurance that God's plans for you result in glory. Verse 7. The resurrection gives joy that is not circumscribed by temporal circumstances. The resurrection gives secure status that is not created or sustained by you. The Christian faith is not like an airline where you have to keep racking up the miles and buying flights in order to maintain your status. You know, I've been getting notes from Southwest Airlines letting me know that they're maintaining my status with Southwest, right? And they're kind of wink, wink, we're doing you a favor. And I said, I'm glad I got a status that isn't based upon how much money I spend or what I do or how I perform or the good deeds I accomplish. No. We have a secure status sustained by resurrection hope. The resurrection gives confidence that we will be vindicated, regardless of how the world treats us. Listen, do you, do you understand? From the time that Jesus grew up and became conscious, he had people dogging him out. It must have felt like so long until he's like, just wait till you suck and see me in my glory. Ooh, that's how I'd have been. I'd be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm going to catch you later. Catch me outside, right? Like... <laughs> Only three disciples saw it before the resurrection when Jesus, when Jesus was transfigured. Peter was like, uh, uh, we got to build a house or something. I don't know what to do, right? <laughs> this is so helpful for calming your anger and your need to get even now. When people do us dirty or they talk trash about us, we tend to go, oh, yeah, and then we go, and then we're doing what the disciples did in the garden. Pull the sword out, cutting fool's ears off, right? And Jesus said what? Put away the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who live by violence and harsh words will die by them. <laughs> but we will be vindicated. That's what the resurrection says. There will be an unveiling where we, as the people of God, who have lived by faith in this life, will be vindicated, just like Jesus was vindicated and will be further vindicated when he returns and every eye beholds him. You know, that's why every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, because they're going to be like, oh, snap, he really was the son of God. And some people are going to bow in joyful welcome of their king. And some are going to fall in abject terror. Faith is the difference. The resurrection gives power to die to the sin, selfishness, pride, lust, greed, and envy that entangle us. There is no sin that is a match for the resurrection power of God. If you don't believe you can change, what you're effectively saying is that your sin is more powerful than resurrection power. That's what you're saying. And when you say it like that, you're like, of course that's not true. Okay, so then begin to get your life in line with that truth. What effect do you expect the resurrection to have in your life? The resurrection, the last thing the resurrection gives is a living hope because it's centered on a living Savior who imparts life to his beloved. How might you pray the resurrection into your lived experience right now? How would you pray the resurrection into your life right now? Do you need a living hope? 
Do you need inexpressible joy? There are all kinds of ways to take action on this text, but one thing I want you to do is pray the resurrection into your life. Pray the resurrection into this community. Pray the resurrection into the lives of your neighbors. That's, that's doing the work. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ were to grip your life, what new practices might you take up? I like how N.T. Wright puts it. He said, he said champagne for breakfast, he is risen. <laughs> I said, I can get down with that, N.T. Wright. But what he's saying is that we are the Easter people. We should be the most joyful, celebratory. You know how some people say, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just a grumpy curmudgeon type. You need to bring that to the Lord. That's not who you are, fundamentally. And that can be transformed by the resurrection. Christ is risen. This is the stubborn fact of the Christian faith and the true story of the world. Christ now lives in the power and beauty of resurrection life. And as we are changed and sustained, we faithfully bear witness to that resurrection. So here are a few application points in close. One, remember that God is at work. Remember that God's at work. One of the most difficult things that we experience is feeling like nothing's happening or feeling like we're do what we're doing is in vain. Like, oh, I'm just doing this. I'm doing this good. No one sees it. It's not recognized. It's, it's not really achieving anything. You have to remember that God is at work. And God is more invested in you than you are in yourself. Parents, God loves your children more than you do. So you don't have to fret and micromanage and control them and, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Do that. And maybe I'm just preaching to myself. Okay, I'm not beyond projecting, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> God is at work in this relationship, in this ministry, in the small and seemingly insignificant and mundane tasks of your life. God is at work. He's using you. He's working through you. He's working in you. He's working for you. Add whatever preposition you want except against you. <laughs> Second, you don't need to micromanage God. You know, sometimes you feel like, God, God, if you would just do it my way, then everything would be all right. Remember, the cross was utterly confusing to everybody. All of the disciples, none of them understood what it was about. And as, and as, as confused as they were, they were even more baffled after the resurrection. It's, all of this is a big, big sign that says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. So humble yourself and relieve yourself of that work of trying to micromanage God and tell God what he ought to be about. Have you ever had someone come and try to tell you how to do your business? Anybody? I have. No shade. But I have, right? And some of you probably have too. Maybe, you, maybe you're a, a physician and someone comes in and tells you they were looking up something on WebMD. And, uh, okay? Maybe, maybe you're an attorney and someone will say, oh, no, no, I, they're going to try and argue with you. All right, listen, I'm going to give you something real quick. Don't try to be God. That's his business. All right? If we shouldn't do it to physicians and attorneys and, you know, other folks who are at the top of their field, God don't have a field. He's beyond fields. 
He knows what he's doing. Trust him with it. Lastly, I want to encourage you to look for death and resurrection all around you. Look for death and resurrection all around you. Scripture calls Jesus the first fruits. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words translated into first fruits, they refer to the portion of the crop that is the first to be ripe. But there's more to come. That's what first fruits means. Jesus is the first fruits, but there's more to come. There's more resurrection to come. History has a direction and a destination. But what do I mean when I say look for death and resurrection all around you? This is what I mean. Receive the testimony of creation. Now, we don't have it as bad as some folk, like in Chicago, but in the winter, everything's dead. Everything's cold. Everything's miserable. And it seems like it's going to be like that. And then all of a sudden, spring, beauty, pops, nice weather, boom. Got you wanting to sit outside and just smell the air, right? Like that, you're just feeling good, right? Like, but that's just, that's resurrection. That's resurrection. I'm going to give you a very practical, ordinary life liturgy. Don't waste your sleeping and your waking. Because the scriptures tell us, it speaks of death for the believer as going to sleep. Do you ever get afraid of going to sleep? I don't. I like sleeping. Right? It's pretty amazing. When you lay down on the bed, you're like, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, sometimes you grunt like an old person if Erwin's working you out. I'm like, oh, God, my back. <laughs> I think this position will work right here. <laughs> but when I, say, when I say the liturgy, don't waste your sleeping and your waking, this is what I mean. When you lay on your bed every night, I want to encourage you from this point forward to say, and just as I fall asleep tonight with no fear, this is what death will be like for me. And I'm going to wake up. I'm going to wake up in the resurrection to the fullness of life and joy and, and, and all the goodness of the Lord. The resurrection changes us and the resurrection sustains us. Let us turn our hearts to the Lord with expectations that are fit for a risen king. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.